Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and host of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are so excited to be here. We have tons of listener feedback on parenting and social media and everything in between. And then the much-awaited conversation on HGTV. We're so excited. Yay! We're so excited. And as always, we will end with something to leave you inspired for the rest of the week. So let's dive in. We had a lot of really good feedback on a couple of conversations we've had about parenting. One came from Kyla. We mentioned this briefly yesterday on pantsuit politics, but she said that Beth often says, we're all screwing up our kids all the time. She says, it's not the first time I've heard that. I don't think it's true, at least for white, middle, upper middle class parents, unless we're consistently doing something pretty bad, abuse, neglect, then our kids will probably be just fine. It's poverty, discrimination, racism, poor schools, unstable schooling, and insecure relationships that really screw kids up. I think she's right, but I don't really think that's exactly what you were saying. I wrote her back and said, I think it's more that you were saying, like, we're never going to meet the standard of which we are applying to ourselves, basically. <laughs> that I think that she's right. Kids are resilient. Kids are adaptive. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that we're screwing up our kids in a way that is going to make life horrible for them. I also think, though, that we cannot parent in a way that leaves our children free of any kind of emotional baggage and free oh, of suffering not? in their life. You know, and we're not supposed to. If we were doing that, they would not be resilient. They would not be ready for life. I say we're probably screwing up our kids all the time anyway as a way to give myself some grace and to release Mm -hmm. some pressure because I just want to understand that I'm not in control of everything. Well, that's what I told a friend. So many of you have recommended Kate Bowler and her book. Everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. It's on my hold list. I listen to the fresh air. It's unbelievable. I'm going to reach out to her and try to get her on the show. But I was talking to one of my friends about this interview, and I said, listening to her podcast, especially with regards to my kids, I think, like, in my head, I say, oh, yeah, like, it's really important for my kids to build resilience and face um, difficulties and suffering. And then also in my head, I'm thinking, yes, but I will perfectly control the appropriate amount of suffering. We will handle it well. It will be like just enough suffering to make them uncomfortable and to learn the lesson, nothing to actually cause them pain. Like this is like the little, if I'm being honest with myself, sort of subconscious narrative in my head. Like, yes, of course, my children need to face suffering. I will perfectly control it and it will only be the minimum amount necessary for them to learn these lessons, which 
is probably not accurate, but that's where I'm at. No, I think that's where most of us are, you know, because we obviously don't want our kids to suffer. The other thing that I mean when I say we're we're screwing them up all the time anyway is just recognizing that we don't know everything. This is something you and I have talked about often. It is it is just a fact that 20 years from now, there's going to be some inside out about a thing that we do all the time today mm-hmm. and how damaging it is, right? Damaging physically or, you know, they shouldn't be eating this or they shouldn't be spending time that way or this sport was actually really dangerous. And that is OK. It's good that we're learning and evolving as a society. <laughs> and I think that another reason I say that is just sort of shorthand for don't get defensive about stuff, Beth, because we should be learning and we should be realizing, oh, that was a terrible thing to have done. But I did the best I could. I knew I did what I knew to do. Listen, I think that that's definitely true. And my grandmother's pretty good about that. My grandmother did all kinds of crazy stuff they told you to do in the 50s with your kids. And she's like, eh, it's what we knew at the time. They survived. <laughs> that's right. That's so right. Carrie also wrote us about unsolicited parenting advice. And she said she thought she realized her frustration was the fact that people offered advice without offering to help. And she said, don't tell me what to do unless you can help me. Don't tell me to take time for myself unless you're offering to babysit. Don't tell me to make sure I stay connected with my husband unless you're offering to babysit. Don't tell me to feed my child organic food unless you're going to buy it and cook it. She said that her mother-in-law made a suggestion about her son's nutrition and she knew she knew how she felt. So she, um, her advice came specifically with a monetary gift to help pay for the thing she was suggesting. Side note, how about mother-in-law goals right there? I'm going to be that kind of mother-in-law. Absolutely. Like, this is what I think. I will pay for it. Here you go. That's really true. It is. You don't want to hear it from people who can't actually help you and are like just offering advice to make you feel bad. That's no good. Mother-in-law goals in that I want to be the per- kind of person who says, I had this idea. I'm happy to pay for it. And then also is totally fine if you reject that gift, you know, mm. and that's the hard part because I don't want those kinds of offers to come with judgment. And I think that's a really hard thing for all of us. I'm not saying that Carrie's mother-in-law is being judgy. I have no idea. But as I think about how I want to be in the future, I could see that feeling really oppressive if it happened all the time with an expectation that you will do what I'm offering to pay for now. So we also got lots of really good social media feedback from our conversation about Lent and Facebook. Amy wrote in and she said, there was one part of your discussion on social media that I felt was missing, and that was respecting the wishes of others and what they wanted to share. For example, you may be someone who has decided thoughtfully or otherwise that you want to live your life as an open book on social media, but that doesn't mean everyone around you feels the same. I had a friend who very much wanted to keep her pregnancy off social media, and for the most part, her wishes were respected, but her dad kept trying to post pictures, comments, updates about it. It was very frustrating to her. I think that is so true. It's this to me is like, I think it's because we're in disjointed places. I think there's like a section of the population who is like coming to Jesus with their concerns about social media and another section of the population is like, oh, whatever, it's Facebook and kind of, and I say that as a person who used to be in one group and now is in a different group. So I think that it's like some people feel differently about social media and sort of take it to the seriousness differently so that, but you should still respect people's wishes, even if you think they're being overly sensitive. You know what I mean? I do. And I also read Amy's message and thought about it in a in an offline context, because I think we're not very good at asking ourselves, am I the right person to talk about this? Is this my news to share? I hate it when people out each other's pregnancies or even just like 
a promotion or something that's somebody else's news and you're like rushing to Instagram it before that person has had a chance to tell the story themselves, you know? So that's kind of where my mind went, that it's a good idea to just always be saying, is this my thing to share? I think it's so interesting how this, the space you can see this happening, like at an accelerated place is weddings. Like used to, people would take pictures of weddings and post them. But now there's like this very, like, do not post, do not take pictures. Like, do not step in the way of the photographer and you may not post anything. Like, so I've had several friends get married recently and like, I couldn't make the wedding or whatever. And I want to get on and see pictures, but you can't, people don't post them. They like wait for the professional photographers. And I guess brides are going to be the pioneers because people don't want to cross brides. But like, that's, I think that's a funny space in which you kind of see some of that playing out. Like, no, I don't want your blurry backlit picture of me in my wedding dress to be the first thing a lot of people see in my wedding dress, like this very like tight control of the experience and how people see it online. I think it's kind of hilarious. I will say that I think there's a lot of unhealthiness going on there as well. (laughs) What I think about is more new babies because some of the hospital pictures taken by relatives, I would not personally as a mom have wanted splashed Mm -hmm. online. I was very controlly about who was going to be coming to the hospital anyway, because I don't like hospitals. And my philosophy was, please leave us alone until we get home in our space. And then we are happy for you to come meet us and the baby. But I mean, there's just a lot of places in life where I think we're losing the ability to tell our own stories because other people with good intentions, nobody's being ugly about this, right? But with good intentions, people are getting out in front of us. And and I do think that's an important conversation. Jen also wrote in that she has given up um, Facebook and social media for Lent and that she found her blood pressure was um, much better regulated and that she found she was sort of looking around and talking to people more. She said, what I did miss for these six weeks were the connections I made with my online mom friends, the social invitation to events at my dance studio and general news and events. As much as we hate Facebook, it's easy to just flip it on and find everything you desire almost at your fingertips. I think that's what's so true. It's like it's it's become so necessary. Here's what I thought was the most interesting part of Jen's message. She did not give up Twitter. And she said Twitter was less of a problem to get mad at because she doesn't get mad at strangers and bots the way she gets mad at people that she's going to see every day. And that made me think about maybe that's part of why I like Twitter better, Mm -hmm. because I have carefully curated it, one. And two, if I see something I disagree with, I just keep scrolling. I don't have to think about the fact that, wait, this is incongruent with this person or my experience of this person, because most of my Twitter community are, are not people I interact with off of Twitter. The other positive thing that we heard from social media, and I thought this was really true, is we had another listener write in that her daughter had a unique medical condition and that those spaces became like such a positive influence in her life because she was able to find other people whose children had this condition and so that that she was able to connect with them. I think that was always the promise of the internet, right? That you would be able to connect with people that shared experiences that you might not be able to connect geographically surrounding you. So, I, I mean, I still think that is the the promise of certain parts of the internet. I think we've just underestimated the negative consequences that come with it. But I do think that's very, very true. Listen, we've been really hard on the internet for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. here. The internet is wonderful, though. I mean, it's still like all of the reasons that we got sucked in are still valid. I think the question now is, what's the cost of that? 
And we have to recognize the dissonance in the fact that we only know about that cost because the internet. Like, it's Mm -hmm. still a place that's telling us. I'm thinking about this whole situation going on with Sinclair News. We only know about that because websites exist that can aggregate all this local news coverage and tell us. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater to use an expression that I hate. I just can't think of another one right now. (laughs) You know, there there are so many positives. And I I don't want to devalue primarily online relationships. Some of the most impactful relationships in my life are with people that I almost never see in person or have <coughs> never met in person. Hello. Exactly. Like me. This what listen, these podcasts would not exist without Facebook. B we gotta be real about it. And zero people would listen to us without <laughs> social media. I mean so we, true. we don't exist independent of all of this. So there are wonderful, wonderful things about social media. And there are lots of things that we all need to figure out. And there are wonderful things about giving up some of your privacy so that your phone can tell you how to get where you're going. It's just we've got to figure out the other side of that and make some decisions on a personal level and on a societal level about those trade-offs. So we are still crowdsourcing little ways to rebel. For those of you who didn't hear that episode, um, one of my friends was a, is a nutrition coach, and she recommended that women find ways to sort of break the rules because women, for the most part, are rule followers and find way, little ways to break the rules that aren't foods. Because often what we do is like, uh, whatever. I did everything for everybody else today. I'm going to have this brownie. I, in fact, I did that two nights ago. Whatever. I'm not sad, sorry about it. But that's really, a, it's a good to find ways, other ways you can break the rules, quote unquote. Um, and so we were asking for ways that y'all break the rules. One listener wrote in and I thought this was good, which is she just uses her nice stuff. Like she uses her nice dishes and she uses the nice face wash and she uses the nice lotion. She doesn't wait for a special occasion. She just uses it now. And I think that's a that's an excellent one because there are like there's a little charge of like, I'm going to use my china to drink my tea today. Like I'm breaking the rules. I think that's a good one. But my favorite one is one that Elizabeth came in. And I can't believe I didn't think about this because I do this. Um, she says the biggest for me is not shaving during the winter for the past two years, even my pits. And I'm with you, girl. I love it. I don't shave my legs or my armpits from like mm, September. Used to be New Year's, but then the the party, fancy party I went to, we went to long dresses and I decided I always like sleeves better anyway on long dresses. So I didn't even do New Year's and I didn't even do Easter this year because it was too cold. So I wore a jacket and pants. So I'm still going strong. I do it also because it makes me itch to shave, especially in the wintertime. But listen, if you have not tried it, highly recommend it. You mentioned, though, not shaving to some women, and they're, I swear to you, their heads rotate around backwards like in The Exorcist. Like, it is the most revolutionary thing to suggest to some women that you, oh, I don't know, could, like, not shave for a while. Well, see, this is the thing, is I've thought more about this question a lot of the ways in which I rebel against a rule just make me mad at the rule. <laughs> you know, exactly. like one of my big ways to rebel as an adult has been wearing my naturally curly hair curly because and I've talked about this before, like somewhere in my life, I got a very strong message that curly hair isn't professional. It's not serious. And I flat ironed my hair for the first few years of my career. 
And then I had kids and I was like, ain't nobody got time for this. I don't have time for that. I don't even blow dry my hair. Are you kidding me? And so now I wear a curly. But as I started doing that at work, like that was kind of a big deal for me. And lots of women commented on it. Like, good for you having the confidence to wear your hair curly. And so... That just makes me but mad did you at get the a role. Lot of, uh, <laughs> I could never wear my, I could never let my curly hair. Did you yes, get that too? Tons. And, and, yep. and it's always accompanied by, this is what we do. This is so what we do. It's always accompanied by, well, my curls aren't pretty like yours. Uh huh. And that uh-huh. kind of thing. We got to stop doing that. Please and I do doing. it well, too. It's an automatic little trigger in our brain. But this is why we have all these stupid rules in the first place. Like I was stupid. thinking, some of the, the things that I do to rebel are like fashion choices and personal presentation decisions. It is dumb that that's rebellion. Like it should just yep. be okay, but it's not. And, and then whenever we, I see that in someone else, our reaction is to admire it while diminishing ourselves and saying that we couldn't possibly make that leap too. Come on, everybody. We got to give that you're up. Gonna, you're going to do it. Like the, uh, people do this a lot with my mom because my mom stopped uh, dyeing her hair and they'll be like, well, my gray hair isn't pretty like that. And I always say, do you know what your gray hair looks like? Well, no. Then how do you know it's not pretty? Because guess what my mother said when she said, when I told her, you guys stopped on your hair, it doesn't look right anymore. And she said, oh, but my gray hair is not pretty like me, Moss. Except for that's not true. Her gray hair is beautiful. She looks inexplicably younger with gray hair. So, like, people, I think people, it's like the default and it doesn't, it's not even true. Like, how would you know? Like, oh, well, my leg hair looks terrible. Well, you've shaved it every day for 30 years. What do you, how do you even know what it looks like? You know, like, it's just, it's so funny to me. Here's part it's, of why It's I think, like total default. Here's why, part of why I think that happens, though. I think it's like deflecting judgment. Mm-hmm. My gray hair is not pretty like yours, which I have to say. Otherwise, I'm going to admire you for wearing yours, but then feel bad about myself for dying mine. So mm-hmm. what I need to do is tell you that I like yours, but I couldn't possibly like mine. I mean, it's just terrible. It's so I just, silly. I, wish, I would like give so much praise to the first woman who said, I don't know. I'm just not brave enough to do it yet. Okay. That's great. Thank you for being honest. Or I'm afraid it looked, would look, t- I don't know what it looked like, but I'm afraid it would be terrible on me. I'm or just I just don't want to. That's or I just okay, don't want too. Either too. Like, I don't care. Just, just be honest with the emotions about it or be like, I don't know. I never even thought about it. Or I don't, I don't even care. Just the, does it have to be the, the, cause here's the thing. It's like such a empty, it's like an, an empty attempt at confidence. Well, I thought this through carefully, and this is why it wouldn't work for me. Or you haven't thought it through carefully, and that is also a-okay. And you just, you're just you thinking about it now because somebody else did it, and it's a, it's a reality that wasn't it hadn't even occurred to you. That's cool, too. Like, I don't know. I just, it never rings true. You know what I mean? And it's also possible for you to say, I really like your gray hair. Full stop. Yeah, just stop. And I've chosen not, and then just quietly to yourself, and I've chosen not to have gray hair myself. That's you cool. Also have- Those two things can exist simultaneously. It is not particularly brave of me to not flat iron my hair. It is lazy of me to not flat iron my hair. <laughs> it, it, you know, like those things are both true, I guess. But it's not a commentary on other women. I don't think that if you flat iron your hair every day, you are less brave than I am. <laughs> like, it's fun to do sometimes. I. It's just like there's no judgment in these choices, but we wrap them in all this stuff that makes them feel super judgy. So thank you for, again, always, this community for the amazing feedback. We are going to move on to our main segment, 
and I don't know if you can feel me rushing because I'm so freaking excited to talk about HGTV up next. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Yes. Tell me about your personal relationship with HGTV. Okay. I go through periods of HGTV infatuation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. followed by periods that I think of as detoxification. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I binge again. Yep. Yep. And I am not sorry about it. (laughs) Um, I think that's that. Well, let me let me rewind. So I canceled my cable in 2011. At which point I obviously watched dramatically less HGTV. Um, I did go through a period in which I purposely sought out a way to watch HGTV. Not surprisingly, when I was house shopping, I went through a very intense phase with Love It or List It when I was just when I was trying to get the heck out of Kimberly Court into my new house. And that's not surprising. I did. I'm fully on board with the cultural critique that HGTV has made us all hate our houses. We will put a link in the show notes to this awesome piece called Don't Hate Your House, or it's along those lines. And I'm I'm sorry for my HGTV binging in that I do think HGTV perpetuates two main problems. One, the idea that, you know, there are certain things that you have to have. You have to have hardwood floors. You have to have solid surface countertops. You have to have open floor plans like that part I feel bad for participating in. So I think it it perpetuates this idea that things constantly have to be better. And that renovation is like the name of the game. Um, Also, I feel bad for participating in HGTV because I also think it perpetuates like a universal aesthetic right now. It is like the fixer upper aesthetic. And that also just based on my personality really bothers me. Like I want to walk into your house and know more about you not know how well you can execute the magnolia vision of the world. You know what I mean? So those are the two things I do feel bad about, about my binge watching in the past and probably in the future of HGTV. It's such a weird thing because on the one hand, and we had a listener write in and say that in a therapist's office that she's been in, they have HGTV on all the time in the waiting room because the therapist says it's the least triggering channel that they could have on. And I believe that there is something strangely almost meditative about sitting in front of your television because there's no conflict. It's one of the only places you can turn on the TV and not have conflict. Oh, I disagree with that, though. They have they have. In like infinity bullish gender conflict, the guy is such a dope. The lady's such a smarty. Oh, it's so. But everybody's annoying. in on it, right? <laughs> everybody's in on it. It's always going to resolve pretty happily. 
there's there's no kind of intense low risk. There's just not much to get angry about. Yeah. And so I get it in that respect. I also thought, though, when we got that email about how when I first started seeing a therapist in college, she came to the waiting room where I was reading a magazine in the vein of home improvement and lifestyle. And she said, oh, my God, that is the last thing that you need. She was (laughs) like, you already think that you have to make the earth rotate on its axis every day. (laughs) Please do not read those magazines. Um, And I think that there's some truth in both directions. You know, I watched a ton of HGTV when I was pregnant, in part because I didn't have much to do besides watch TV because I got to this point in my pregnancy where my feet were the size tree trunks. I couldn't really get my (laughs) shoes on. I didn't want to go anywhere. Uh, My pregnancies both went past the estimated due dates. And so I spent a lot of time with HGTV and it was very relaxing. I think the volume of HGTV that we consume contributes, though, to that sense of pressure. My house needs to look like I hired a decorator. But mm-hmm. but not a fussy decorator, a casual decorator who just makes it look effortless to be here, even though there's mm-hmm. all kinds of effort going into creating this scene. Well, and why does it have to be the same thing? Like, why does it always have to be the same problem? Why is it fixer upper Atlanta, fixer upper Boston, fixer upper? Like, why couldn't it be we came to these people like teeny tiny budget renovation, like these people, we needed to use what they have and like stuff like that. Like, it just it's the same I mean, I know why, because that whole entire channel is built on consumption, you know, and I get it on a certain level. But there's that part of that um, article is a really interesting sort of look back on HGTV history and how the shows originally were not like that. Like, man, I was all in on Trading Spaces when it first started. Did you watch that show? I didn't. Oh, they did. Oh, that was the best show. And the designers were very different. Everything like it didn't all look the same. And it was like neighbors in a weekend. So it wasn't major renovations. They were doing little stuff. I mean, they did crazy stuff like, you know, glue grass to the wall. But it was fun. And it was like it just felt different than what they're doing now, which feels so the same and feels, you know, so expensive and built on this sort of universal aesthetic and a massive amount of consumption. Well, I think they're trying with some of that. Sometimes they try in ways that are a little bit silly because (laughs) part of that is on HGTV and part of it is on us, right? We would rather watch something that's a little bit of fantasy, that's a Mm -hmm. little bit out of our budget, that's a house that we're probably never going to live in. And then when they have the kind of real moments on shows like House Hunters where these people come in and they're like, my budget is $100,000 in Atlanta and I want granite countertops. And they're like, listen... (laughs) You're not going to have that. You know, that's a little bit less fun to watch, right? <laughs> it's kind of a buzzkill. And I think the the high of HGTV, you're right, is consumer-oriented. It's look at all this stuff I could have and how happy would I be if my bathroom looked like this oasis. What I think gets missed, though, it's, it, it's really difficult to translate that to our lives. Mm-hmm. And when I go in homes that I actually really enjoy being in, it is because of the layers of life that come across in those homes. This is how I've started to give myself some grace. So my house is not very decorated, and it is in part because I don't really have that talent. It's also because I just haven't made that a priority. We moved into our house. I got very career focused very fast. 
We had little kids. I haven't wanted to spend a whole lot of money on our house because we have little kids and I don't want to have things that they're going to ruin and I'm going to get upset about. And so, so my house is not impressive in any way. But I've realized too that I like it better all the time because we are naturally adding, like there are now naturally baby pictures to mm-hmm. kindergarten pictures. Do you know that because there is now this thing we bought on this trip that we really like. And that evolution of your life impacting your house can't be contained in a 30 to 60 minute format. And I don't think that we give ourselves permission to recognize that, you know? Right. No, I think that's totally true. I think there is so much of this that is just personality driven. So I come by decorating and just housemaking by powerful genetic currents. My great grandmother famously, I believe she was 82 at the time, looked at my grandmother and said, I wish I could just do one more house. Like we like, we like to do that. We like to move and decorate and work, figure out how our, now we don't get rid of furniture. We're not buying new furniture every time. We're just figuring out how the furniture works in a new space. That's pretty much my favorite thing to do of all time. That's probably why I liked house hunting so much because at every new house I thought, mm, how could I make this space work? It's just like a puzzle. I love it so much. And I come by it naturally. Like my mother at lunch today looked at me and said, cause I'm going through a kitchen renovation right now. And she said, you know, it's really nice when you get your all ha- your house all the way you want it, but also it's kind of sad, <laughs> which I thought was hysterical. And also, again, speaks to my genetic makeup. My aunt is an interior designer. Like, we got it. We got it naturally running through this family. And I do. I love that. I love figuring out how the space works. I love, I'm exquisitely sensitive to my environment. That's why I'm um, a hot mess right now with this kitchen renovation. Like I like things picked up. I like to know where my things go. I like to have space for my things. Like, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Like when we moved into our, our new house is twice the size of our old house. And there are these, these giant built-in bookcases. And despite the fact that I was in 2000 square feet, I filled all four of these giant bookspace bookcases without purchasing a single decorative thing. And I don't even have that many books because And I have those things that make a house a house. I have travel souvenirs and photos and art. And I have so much of that stuff to fill my space. And it makes me so stinking happy. Like, it will come as a surprise to absolutely no one that my entire den is covered with Paducah art. Because that's how much Paducah art I have. Because I love Paducah. So, like, I love that part of it. Like, I think that that part is... Like, like you said, like layering on the thing, like that, what you love and something that speaks to you. But I also love the like, like what size rug do I need here? What kind of furniture would work in this space? Like, I, I like it to be very functional. And that's what I just worry. Like, I just wonder if HGTV, like I said, because it's, it's everyone thinks they need a giant island is pushing us to an aesthetic that's not going to function for everyone. And that's what, that's what a home should be. A home should be functional for the people in it and it should feel beautiful and suited to your life and your family. And that's, that's, you know, my least favorite houses to go in are the houses that you can just tell a decorator walked into and did their thing. Like I call it, I call that style rich. That's what it looks like. Like somebody came in and just spent a bunch of money and that's good and it's beautiful, but I doesn't tell me anything about your life. And that's kind of how I feel about weddings too. Like I want to leave the party and feel like I know you better. Well, 
I'm kind of to the point where I just don't care. However, if you don't like decorating and you want to hire somebody to make it look like a magazine, go for it. But a good decorator should like know, like, even if you don't like to decorate, like it should still look like you. Like you're going to think you don't have a style. And if you worked with a really good decorator, you're at the end, you'll be like, oh, my God, I didn't even know I wanted this. Just FYI. But also, if it's just not your thing, Mm -hmm. it's not wrong to have a home that's not decorative. It's not wrong to have a home no. that couldn't be featured in a magazine. No way. And I'm afraid those that we're not. Homes. They're like designed for the page. They're not designed to live in. And we need to value things beyond the aesthetics of them sometimes, too. For example, Chad and I have a piano in our house that is not a particularly beautiful piano. It is not a baby grand or a grand piano. It is not a wood that I would have chosen, but it's been in my family for a couple of generations now, and I really value that piano. And so I think sometimes we forget that there are things beyond the look of our homes that matter. Um, and, and again, like that might not be your thing. It's not wrong to make a different choice. Somebody mm-hmm. else might say, I don't want that piano in my home because it doesn't look beautiful. Okay, fine. You Like that's fine for you. And this is fine for me. And I think the trouble with HGTV is that if you consume enough of it over time, it's easy to start to think, no, that's not fine. This is how it must be. Well, the problem is, what does look beautiful mean? It right. means one thing on HGTV. That's right. for dang sure. But it doesn't mean one thing in real life. Look beautiful means, like I said, it functions for your family. It pleases you. You feel good when you walk into it. Now, like you said, full disclosure, some people, what feels good and peaceful and is awesome for them is walking into a home that looks like a hotel room. Like that is a thing that some people desperately yep, want. Absolutely. Like, that's the thing that brings them a true sense of inner peace. Not me, but I get it. Like, I totally get that. There could be a point in my life where I'll be like, I would like to walk in this look like a hotel room. I would definitely like to live in an Ikea. But, you know, I think that that's the problem. Like, there's just, I don't feel like there's a lot of gradations in HGTV. Like, it's just, the aesthetics are so similar. You can see the trends as they start to surface through the shows or like what the home industry has decided is the new thing everyone needs. And that's just what, that's just what totally bugs me about it. And I don't begrudge anyone. Like, I love the fixer-upper aesthetic. I'd live in any of those homes in a hot second if I didn't have little kids. I think they're beautiful. I don't mind that Chip and Joanna are selling their stuff at Target and Pier 1. Go for Mm. it. I think they're talented people. I think they're fun to watch. I have no qualms with any of it. As a viewer, I just recognize all things in moderation. Because if I watch too much of this, then I start to feel apologetic about my cabinets and my countertops. And I want mm-hmm. to appreciate my home. You know, I want to come in, even though I'm not a decorator, I want to come into my house and be grateful for it. And I think that it's easy to see it with such a critical eye when I watch too much of those shows that I lose a little bit of that gratitude. And so that's why I feel like I have to detox from it sometimes. Here- Here's the channel I really want, and I actually do think she's inked to deal with Netflix. I want a Con Marie channel. I just, that would be meditative for me. I want to turn on the TV and watch that woman organize people's houses all day, every day. I would be so into that. I cannot even, they could take all my money. I would, I would get cable again for that channel. I'm not even trying to lie. There is an aspect of HGTV that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit and see what you think. Because you're right, the gender dynamics that play out on HGTV, and I read a really funny article about this that we'll find and put in the show notes, too, is it, it is always like the dopey guy, right, and the more talented wife 
But the dopey guy is also the guy who can actually build stuff. And the wife has a real eye for putting a napkin on a plate in a way that, you know, stops the show. (laughs) So I was thinking about what does that say to us about real life? Here is a pattern in my life that I don't know that I've ever talked about much on our podcast. I have always, since like middle school, I have always had close friendships and or kind of mentoring relationships with much older men, like significantly older men have always been a really important part of my life. They've always kind of taken me under their wings. Let me tell you things. And in the course of that, like I've become sort of a sounding board for them always. A pattern in all of those relationships has been hearing from those older men that they never cared about their houses. And at some point their homes stopped feeling like their homes Mm, because they just disappeared from them. Right. And Mm. I think HGTV sort of perpetuates that. Or they compartmentalize it. Don't worry. Everybody can have a man cave, this one little spot. Like like a man is supposed to just have one room in the whole Mm -hmm. house. That is crazy. And one thing that has kind of held me back in my decorating of our house, but that I'm also kind of grateful for, is that Chad does care what everything looks like. And he's not a decorator either, but he cares what it looks like. And so our home's aesthetic is every bit as much Chad as it is me which makes it much harder to do anything, you know? Yeah, <laughs> see, that's a thing. Two people that's are really, weighing in. That's a really, like, paradox here. Because I think you're right. I don't think that men should be excluded. At the same time, I'm just going to be real clear. Like, I don't consult my husband about this stuff. Like, I told him all the time, this is also why I picked our children's names. I did not marry Nicholas Hahn for his aesthetic. I just didn't. He doesn't have good style. He's only now, like, starting to wear, like, like grown guy clothes like he just kind of about five years ago gave up the college boy wardrobe besides the suits he wore to work like it's just not his thing and like I do consult him about functionality of stuff like if he's like oh I don't like like I don't want the kitchen to be like this or whatever but for the most part like I'm not even trying to lie I kind of railroad him and I don't want him I don't want him to feel like he doesn't have a space in the house and he did there came a moment at Kimberly Court in particular as our families grew and we we kind of outgrew that space where he was like I don't have any space in this house and I being the (laughs) amazingly kind and generous wife that I am I cleared out a whole closet for him I'm like this is your closet this is for your camping stuff you this is your space but I think the other part of that too at least in my own marriage is that he's also messy like I can't like, I can't give him a space. He will. He's so messy. So I don't know how to to walk that line between like. And also, I just don't think he cares. Like, I think that's the other thing. Like, maybe men don't feel like they can. They're not sort of taught to care about their space. That's like such a gendered thing. Like, I've been really trying because I don't I this is like one of my favorite things for my mom and I to do is like think about the house and how we want it to look. So I like really try to. But I thought about it like if I want this with my kids, I'm not having girls. So I'm going to have to include this in the relationship with my boys. So like, I try to talk to him about it. How do you want to decorate your room? Where do you want to put this? Like, I think that might be more of it with the gender situation more than anything is like, we don't teach little boys and include them in the conversations in the way that we do little girls. Maybe that's what it is. Well, I think there's also the responsibility aspect of it because what you're getting into is what we typically think of as emotional labor and women's work. Mm -hmm. And I see with Chad, he feels 
this he feels as much responsibility, often more responsibility for our home than I do. Mm-hmm. And it's you can see the wear and tear of that. Like there is a lot of pressure around that. And it's not just in the traditionally masculine ways of like caring about the yard and stuff. I mean, he really thinks about our house a lot. He gets much more frustrated than I do by a scratch on a piece of furniture. And so there's like there's a balance in all of this. But I think the gendered aspect is pretty fascinating. And I would love to hear from our listeners about that because it does always pain me when I hear a man say, yeah, I said I didn't care all these years. And then I woke up one day and it didn't feel like my house anymore. Yeah. There's got to, cause I think there's responsibility on both parties there for sure. Like you can't, you can't just, you can't tap out and then all of a sudden be sad that it doesn't look like you, like you got to be involved. No, that's right. but I think, I think part of it is like, we don't teach them how to be involved. So I mean, I try to really do that. Like I said, with my boys, but yeah, I can't wait to hear from our community on this whole whole topic. I'm sure we're going to get all the emails, and I'm here for it because I love this kind of thing. So this week, I wanted to share a children's book with everybody that is so sweet. I heard about it on Cool Mom Finds. It's called The Rabbit Listened, and it is about empathy. So I'm just going to read it. One day, Taylor decided to build something, something new, something special, something amazing. Taylor was so proud. But then, out of nowhere, things came crashing down. The chicken was the first to notice. Cluck, cluck. What a shame. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry this happened. Let's talk, talk, talk about it. Cluck, cluck. But Taylor didn't feel like talking, so the chicken left. Next came the bear. How horrible. I bet you feel so angry. Let's shout about it. But Taylor didn't feel like shouting, so the bear left. The elephant knew just what to do. Trumpeta. I can fix this. We just need to remember exactly the way things were. But Taylor didn't feel like remembering, remembering, so the elephant also left. One by one, they came. The hyena, let's laugh about it. The ostrich, let's hide and pretend nothing happened. The kangaroo, what a mess. Let's throw it all away. And the snake, let's go knock down someone else's. But Taylor didn't feel like doing anything with anybody. So eventually they all left until Taylor was alone. In the quiet, Taylor didn't even notice the rabbit, but it moved closer and closer until Taylor could feel its warm body. Together they sat in silence until Taylor said, please stay with me. The rabbit listened. The rabbit listened as Taylor talked. The rabbit listened as Taylor shouted. The rabbit listened as Taylor remembered and laughed. The rabbit listened to Taylor's plans to hide, to throw everything away, to ruin things for someone else. Through it all, the rabbit never left. But when the time was right, the rabbit listened to Taylor's plans to build again. I can't wait, Taylor said. It's going to be amazing. That is The Rabbit Listened by Corey Dorfeld. And we will put the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be back on Pantsuit Politics on Friday and here again next Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.